This week on Writers Inc. I get asked about that a lot. Um, so, and I've also since then co-authored another book, which has not been sold yet. Um, but yeah, co-authoring is its own kind of animal. And my advice that I always give people um, is that if you're going to do that, make sure that you and your writing partner both know exactly what your strengths are. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. How are you doing this week, J.D.? I'm doing good. Can you hear that? Like if I... Real quiet in the background. We, we we've got construction happening over here again. Oh, we've got I don't the hear it. back. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a very exciting day. We we won our little battle with the town. Oh, congrats! Um, so, yeah, so we got the green light to to move forward with our our steps and the wall that we're putting out there. Um, so like they they were out here with the heavy equipment, like literally like first thing the the other morning, like right after we got the approval. Um, and my neighbor who I kind of started this whole whole mess by complaining about it, like he was out there first thing, like grilling. I'm like, what are you doing? Who gave you permission? <laughs> So I had to go out there and shut that down. Um, but yeah, so now he's just, I keep seeing him like at his, at his window kind of sulk in there. And I just want to get out in the street and just kind of do a nah, 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 nah. But no, I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to do that. Keep it classy. <laughs> keep, keep it classy. Exactly. But it, it's looking good. It's nice to finally have something happening out there. Um, speaking of things happening, I, I saw something the other day, somebody sent me a picture and I, I it wasn't something that I ever expected to see here in the U.S., but it was a book vending machine. Have you ever seen these? I have not seen them in the wild. But I've heard about them. Yeah, so they're they're really big in in Europe. Um, you know, and if you think of like Netflix when they first started off, or like Redbox, um, that that kind of thing, um, that's sort of what these are like. Um, here in the states, libraries tend to buy them and they put them out in front of their their library so that you can check out books. You know, when the library is actually closed, which right. has been you know obviously huge right now. Um, but the one that they sent me was a picture of one um, out in in Colorado, and it was just at a shopping center. Um, and you know, like Redbox, when they first started that, they put them in front of grocery stores, so just high traffic areas. But I'm, I'm really interested to see where that kind of thing goes because that could be, um, you know, a really strong answer to a lot of, a lot of different problems. Um, I know we had talked about the Expresso book printing machine a couple of times in the past, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. And for people that aren't familiar with it, it's it's a, a system that's um, roughly about the size of a, a like a folding card table. Um, and you can print basically any book that's in its catalog. Um, it'll print it right there on the fly, full color cover, um, you know, all, all the pages, it binds everything and, and spits it out. And it, it looks like, you know, a regular paperback quality book. You can't tell that it came out of this machine. So I'm, I'm really hoping that we see some kind of combination of these two things pop up you know at some point where people are putting the espresso book printing machine as a vending type machine in in places um which could really open a lot of doors particularly for the the indie authors um because with espresso in, in general the, the large publishers have never been on board with it uh, so if you get a chance to play with one and you go through the catalog you're going to find that it's primarily indie authors and a, a couple of the smaller publishers but like random house and harper collins and those guys have, have steered clear of it 
Um, but it, it could be a game changer. Um, but the, the book vending machine itself is, is really cool. I mean, you basically, you deposit your books when you're done it puts them back on the shelf where somebody else can, can take them out and kind of automates the, the whole library process. That is, that has a ton of potential. I mean, if you think about the number of bus depots in this country or rest stops, I mean, imagine having a book vending machine at every rest stop on every highway in North America. Well, it's, did you ever go to Cracker Barrel? Yes. Yeah, so they they've got audiobooks there. Um and you can you basically buy them at one Cracker Barrel and you can drop them off at another one and um you know any anywhere in the country, which is which is kind of neat. And I, I always thought we'd see something like that with books too, but it, it never actually happened. But yeah, this this could be a way for for that kind of thing to to spread. Yeah. Yeah. So man, how's uh How's the, the new release been? How, you, <laughs> tell us a little bit about what you've been doing, what you've been following. Well, I can tell you what I haven't been doing, which is sleep. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I've been, um, you know, I, I was told to, you know, I, I would hear about the New York Times bestseller list on Thursday. And, and you know, we're recording this on a Thursday. Um, and I, and I, my agent pointed out yesterday that, you know, they actually meant a week from now. Like I, I, you know, like the book came out on Monday. Um, so this is the Thursday following that Monday. So like, I won't actually hear anything for another full week because they need a week's worth of data in the, the system to get collected first. So I, I thought the, the agony would be over by today, but now I've got another full week of waiting <laughs> that I've got to do. Um, there, there's not really a whole lot of insight that I, I can glean from this. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge data guy. I love pulling, you know, pulling numbers and trying to figure stuff out. Um, I've got people sending me screenshots of, you know, everything. I mean, it's popping up on their Kindle screen. Um, you know, there's television commercials running. They're sending me those um, full page ads and newspapers are shooting me copies of those. So like the book itself is all over the place. Um, I, the only real visibility that I've got is on Amazon, just like, you know, any other, you know, I'm, I'm approaching this as an indie author would, and I'm looking at the rankings um, and it's hovering some, you know, in the, like the 20 to 50 range in the overall Kindle store. So it's been kind of hanging out in there um, on the Kindle side of the, the hardcover is, I think I've seen it anywhere from like a hundred to like maybe two or 300. So it's in a pretty decent, you know, tight range too. Um, but, you know, beyond that, like, I don't really have a whole lot of you know, information that I can get, like, I've got no idea what that really translates to it, it you know, from a sales standpoint. Um, I'm sure I could bug the editor and she would probably tell me, but you know, if, if I start doing that, then I'm going to be shooting her emails every 10 minutes. You know, <laughs> how about now? How about yeah. now? You know, are, are, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Um, yes. I'm just, I'm trying to get it out of my head. I'm trying to hit my computer in the morning and just, you know, put my nose to the, the laptop and just write the next book. Um, but it's, yeah. it's getting progressively harder every day to, to get that focus in there. Um, I, I know it's doing well, you know, which I guess is the, the simple answer to all this. You know, how well is, is really something I won't know, you know, for maybe another week. Well, uh, we were talking a little bit um, before we hit record and, and I won't spoil anything for anyone, but I really love the book. Uh, there's there was something in there I didn't see coming, uh, which is always a great surprise as a reader to kind of have that like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this kind of moment and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. So I, I'm 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 thinking it's going to be pretty big. I, I hope it is for you. I hope so. I mean, Patterson put out a, a tweet saying that it was his best reviewed book of his career, um, which wow. is a, a scary thing to to see. And, and we had a ball writing it. I mean, this is the first book that I think he's ever done without an outline where he just kind of freeformed it. And I, I think that, you know, it was just a, a fresh way to approach it. And I think that helped quite a bit too. Yeah. Um, but we're going to have to see. Speaking of fresh approaches, have you seen the new Stephanie Meyer book? I have not. Okay. So Stephanie Meyer, she wrote, you know, the Twilight Twilights. series. Mm -hmm. um, she's got a new book out, which is technically an old book. It's called Midnight Sun. And it's essentially Twilight rewritten from Edward Cullen's standpoint. Oh, 
Um, yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I read all the Twilight books. I, I've been to the support meetings and I've worked it out <laughs> in, in therapy, um, you know, but I, I'm, I'm confident enough in my, myself to admit that I've read all four of those books. Um, so I went out and got this because I, I really wanted to see how, how something like this would work. Um, and it, it, it brought me back to something that we had talked about before. Remember how we, we discussed how d- it's difficult for like a male author to write a female lead yes. um, or, or vice versa. Um, so in this case, we've got Stephanie Meyer, who's writing a male lead in, in first person. Um, and I, I don't want to give her a hard time, but in a lot of ways, it just it doesn't work because, um, you know, the, the language that's being used, um, the inner dialogue for Edward Cullen is very female. Oh. Um, you know, like it worked perfectly when it was all Bella. Um, but but in this case, it, to me anyway, it, it doesn't doesn't flow quite as well. Um, and maybe this is just because I'm a guy, you know, like I, I know what kind of thoughts, you know, a guy had in, you know, in this case in high school when he's you know meeting a girl for the first time, that, <laughs> you know, like the, the thought pattern is very different. Um, yeah. And and Edward's thoughts tend to lean a lot like Bella's at, huh. at this point, um, you know, and that may change, you know, I mean, if she's going to especially if she's going to try and continue through this whole series and she really gets her, her feet wet and, you know, figures out where she's going with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I encourage anybody who, who, who's curious about that to, to pick it up. Um, and you know, just to go into the psychology of this a little bit, because we had talked about that the last time too, um, there are distinct differences between uh, male, male voices and female voices, whether we want there to be or not. Um, there's websites out there where as an author, you could take text from your book and you can drop it in there and it'll tell you whether it, you know, it leans male or female, huh. and, you know, give you a percentage, you know, this, this reads 86% male, like that kind of thing. Um, from a psycholo- uh, psychology standpoint, um, most au- people or readers, when they pick up a book and they start going through a first person narrative, um, they're going to tend to, uh, assign the same identity as the author. So in this case, the, you know, the author is Stephanie Myers, a female. So when you're reading that first person narrative, the subconscious is going to go, this is a female, this is a female, this is a female. Um, so you've got a lot of things that are working against you and it's extremely difficult for a female to write a male first person point of view or vice versa. Yeah. Um, you know, it could definitely be done. You know, it's just like anything else. It just, it, it takes a lot of practice because it's not your, your natural state. I, I kind of liken it to like, if you're right-handed and all of a sudden you've got to write with your left hand, you know, like you could pull it off, but it's not going to be as good. And eventually if you practice hard enough, you might be able to get it there. But yeah, you know, obviously one is more dominant than the other. Um, but this is a really cool case study in that um, none of it is affecting her sales. Cause I think the thing is, is selling like crazy, but it's, you know, just kind of cool that it's out there. And I just wanted to bring it up. Yeah, that's interesting. Definitely worth a look. So what's going on with you? Uh, well, um, we were talking too. we have a, a little, uh, a little piece we're going to share with all of our listeners real soon, a short story that, I've been working on and you've been mentoring me on and uh, it's, it's got, I, it came back from the editor and uh, we're just kind of finalizing how we're going to present it, but we're going to, we're going to make it available if people kind of want to learn some things about the craft, especially of a short story uh, that's going to be coming soon. And that was, that was a lot of fun to do. Yeah, I, I definitely put you through the ringer. Yeah, you um, did. <laughs> so, so the plan was Jason gave me a, a short story and I basically treated him as if he were one of my mentoring clients and, you know, went back and forth, didn't really pull any punches on it. Um, you know, told him what I felt worked, what didn't work. And we just went back and forth. Um, what, where did we end up? 11, 11 different drafts, drafts yeah. by, by the time we got done. Um, but, you know, that that's what it takes. And I mean, judging by your editor's comments, I, I think we we got it right. 
Um, it sounds that so, way. Yeah. 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 So, so we'll have to see, but it'll be cool to, to get that out there and let some other people weigh in on it. Yeah, definitely. So guys, uh, you know, if you're listening in real time, probably within a week or two, maybe three at the, at the most, uh, that, that should be up there and we'll make it freely available to any, anyone that wants to check it out. It'll be, it'll be every, you'll be able to track it. It'll be every version of that short story. In addition to the email exchanges that, uh, that we had talking about each stage of the draft. So hopefully people can use that and learn from it. Yes, sir. So who do we have on today? We have the amazing Tosca Lee. Oh, Tosca. Okay. This, this one should be fun. Um, I, I've known Tosca for a, a really long time. Um, I met her for the first time at Thriller Fest, but I mean, we had talked um, for probably three or four years or so before that, just via email. Um, very fascinating history. Um, and I, she's done some collaborations with uh, Ted Decker, um, a really, really cool series. Um, but yeah, I, I really want to hear what she's got to say. She's an interesting person. Yeah, for sure. So why don't we jump into that interview and then we'll come back around on the flip side and talk about it. Okay, here she is, Tosca Lee. Without an office or without a dedicated space, how are you racking up 10,000 words a day? <laughs> okay, so um, what I've been doing is up in that space I was just telling you about. Um, I had an old plywood desk that belonged to my husband and the old octopus lamp of my stepdaughter um you know stuff that I kind of pilfered from people around here and I just have been sitting up there um writing and you know it's just proof that you can if you really want to you can write anywhere um but it is much nicer to have a space of your own <laughs> it's much more comfortable for sure and you know and then you don't have the problem that i've had where every now and then in the middle of a chapter one of the little pieces of ply board on the front of the desk goes plink and falls off <laughs> oh right yes now, do you need uh distract in a distraction free environment do you like to be around other people what sort of your work mm -hmm. preference yeah um I have to have silence. I know people write to soundtracks. Um, I know JD writes to um, white noise. Um, and uh, I'm going to try that actually. But for me, it can't be any music and I can't have conversations. I just can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm the same way. If, if you tried uh, like rainstorms or ocean sounds, that's going to, when I start my next one, that's going to be my thing. Nice. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to give that a try because I know for him, it's a Pavlovian thing too. When he hears it, he knows, right. okay, it's time to write. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. um, what does you, do you have sort of a, a routine or a daily routine that you tend to follow or does it, I know you travel a lot and do a lot of speaking. So is it dependent on where you are? Yeah, it's dependent on where I am, uh, what the most urgent thing is at that time, mm -hmm. what's going on with the kids and in this case, the house, the home renovation. So every day is a little different and it depends too, you know, if I've got interviews or, um, you know, I'm joining people on podcasts like, like yes. today. Yes. So I just kind of play it day by day. I am not the most um, disciplined person and I never have. And I, I see writers who have a day-to-day -day routine and I'm, I'm really envious, but I've never been able to quite figure out how to do that with all the chaos of, you know, kid stuff and travel and all those things but it works for you doesn't it apparently but um <laughs> I, I it's not always comfortable and, and uh, it, i don't feel the most organized sometimes yeah so. yeah <laughs> uh do you are, are you the 
the primary organizer for your kids? Uh, like, is that responsibility on your shoulders as well? Or are they kind of self-sufficient? Well, they are. Um, now we've just got the two at home and they are teenagers. So you still kind of have to, you know, stay on top of them about stuff. So um, since I'm the one who's home most during the day, I, that tends to be me during the school year. Um, but my my husband is really, really, really good at um being a very involved, you know, dad. So he was a single father before we got married. So um, I had no kids. And then I said, I do. And then I had four. So, um, you know, he's been doing this by himself for a really long time. And, and I'm the newbie. Okay. So. Okay. Well, I'm sure that was a, a transition for you. Are, are you still in that transitional moment? Or are you? Yes. <laughs> I, you know, and I keep last night, I was trying to catch up on email and I keep apologizing to people. I'm sorry. This is so late. I'm sorry. And finally it was like, you know, I feel like this should be my signature line or something, but I, I think part of it is just not figuring out how to, you know, do it all. And, you know, as your writing career takes off too, you, you know, you are getting a lot more correspondence and a lot more people are writing to you. And um, so I'm still learning. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And how does that all fit with the tremendous amount of travel and speaking engagements that you do? You're really out there a lot. And uh, how, how does yeah. that all fit into your schedule? Well, you know, some years are, are busier with that than others. Last year, I happened to have two books uh, released in the same year. So um, we went really aggressive last year. Um, but in years leading up to that, I'd say like the, the two or three years before that, those were more quiet, relatively quiet years. So I, I think it, it just depends, you know, and this year I, I do have an aggressive schedule again, but it's not going to be like last year. Okay. So, cause okay. I got to write sometime. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that does beg a, a, a question then what role does that play in your, in your sort of overall writing business? I mean, you, you are predominantly a fiction writer with great publishers. So, uh, you know, how does that all fit in? Well, you know, more and more, this is what I tell people that you may be with a, a great publisher, you may be with one of the big ones, I'm with Simon & Schuster, um, but I find that even as a traditionally published author, more and more authors have to think and market like an indie author. So, um, because there are not as many dollars and because big publishers especially um, may be slower to try new things. And so you have to be out there and that's just part of it. So, um, you know, I, being a writer is, is one thing and you have to create the, the widget in order to sell it. Um, but if you really want to be getting your widgets out there, you have to put in the time and the miles. So, yeah. Yeah. What are some of the things that you can do from behind your laptop, uh, thinking like an indie indie writer that uh, will help get your name out there? Well, whenever possible, um, I like to run book promotions with services. Um, I don't always control the price point, so sometimes I have to bug my publisher to do a, a deep discount on a book. Um, and so I think that's a really effective way to get books in front of people. Um, so by book promotions, I'm talking about things like BookBub or a, a slew of services like that, that will advertise your discounted book to readers. Um, another thing is you can do giveaways on places like Goodreads. 
Um, I think also just being active in groups like uh, reading groups, book groups on places like Facebook where readers gather and they talk about books and they're very loyal, um, even on Goodreads, joining groups on Goodreads as well. Um, that's where the readers are. So if you want to find the readers, go to the book groups and to Goodreads. Yeah. And do you enjoy interacting in that way? I do. Um, the only thing is I find that it can take an entire day to do stuff like that. And, you know, that's where you kind of wish that you had a clone or something. <laughs> um, because it, it, it is very time consuming. And I, I think that's why so many of us have that love relationship with social media. Um, but I, I do think that readers appreciate when they feel like they, they are a part of your life and they know something about your life. Um, so many readers know about my giant German shepherd, Timber, and they know about the boys and adventures at the farm and farmer Brian, who goes with me on a lot of appearances. I think they like him better than me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that they enjoy becoming a part of your your life overall, not just your story worlds. And it isn't for everybody. Not everybody wants to do that. But I think when you do, I think I think readers like it. Yeah. Now, the events, um, I looked at some of the events that you have for this year, and it looks like some of them are more author-related. So is, is that uh, sort of what's your rationale behind that as far as how that fits into your bigger business plan? Yeah, so, you know, that kind of just started as um, something that organically happened. You know, after you write a few books, people ask you to come talk about it. And I started, you know, speaking and then teaching and keynoting and all that stuff. And so that's something I do when I can. I think it's a great way to encourage others and to kind of, you know, give back because when, you know, when you start out, so many people are encouraging you and you're reaching out and, you know, asking all the obnoxious questions and asking to do all the stuff that you don't like people to do later on. Like, can I send you my stuff while you read it, while you critique it? And it's like, I can't, I can't, you know, <laughs> but you know, that was me. And I, I was desperately looking for direction or help or a mentor. And so to be able to be involved in the, the development of other writers who have the same dream is, is really an honor and it's really fun. So, and you can impact somebody's life for the rest of their life by doing that. So I find it really gratifying. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, it's very kind of you to, to come on the podcast with us because that's one, of the, that's one of the main reasons why JD and I are doing this podcast is that we mm. not, might not be able to get into all the libraries of everyone's local community, but there might right. be some writer in you know, Kansas or, or Mississippi who is listening to this and is going to, to learn from it. So I think it's also, this is also another good example of how you're doing that. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know another uh, big part of what you do or what you've done is you are an, go to an extensive depth for research. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really important to you. And, and especially, I, I was wondering if maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about what you did for Iscariot and, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and sort of what that process was like. <laughs> Well, okay, let me preface what I'm saying with a few things. One is I do legit have obsessive compulsive disorder. So um, <laughs> um, for real, um, and you're like, well, she's sitting in a pile of dog hair. How can that be? It is very selective. Just say no. Um, so I think I do kind of attack my writing and the research um, with that. I, you know, I try to kind of harness um, 
my obsessiveness about certain things. Um, I have a great fear of being wrong. I have a great fear of being called out on stuff. Um, and, and I also have a fear of yanking readers out of the story um, by something that rings false or, you know, for anybody familiar with, for instance, a setting, a historical setting, um, you know, there, a lot of times you're already familiar with that. So that's why you're interested and you pick up the book and you want to read it. So I don't want to yank them out of the story. So for Iscariot, that was the story of uh, Judas Iscariot, the infamous betrayer of Jesus Christ. Um, so I went to Israel. Um, I think anytime you can go uh, to wherever you're writing about, naturally, I think you should because you can research it all day long, but until you smell the smells and taste the taste and see the sunset and it's different, you know, you need to hear the sound of voices, um, you know, echoing down the narrow roadways of the, you know, of the city or whatever it is. So there's that. Um, I read a lot. I acquired a large library of, of resources, books, transcripts, commentaries, um, lecture transcripts. And I also acquired people, which I think is a really important thing for authors to do. So get a little cadre of experts in your corner um, that you can um, rely on to answer questions, especially when you're at a spot where you're like, oh crap, I really just need to know this. Um, you can shoot them a quick question. And, um, you know, I was really scared to approach a lot of these experts. Yeah, how, how did you do that? That's, that's interesting. <laughs> well, you know, I, I found several of them from places like The Great Courses, uh, which is put out by the teaching company. Um, also, uh, when you find documentaries on topics that you're writing about, notice who the experts are that they are interviewing and write to them. They're not hard to track down. A lot of them are in university settings or places like that. And what you'll find is, you know, I thought that I would just be like, you know, told to go away, you writer of fictional stuff, and <laughs> this is frivolous and whatever. But what I found is there are a lot of experts who are overjoyed to share this knowledge that they've spent usually lifetimes acquiring. And, you know, they're teachers, many of them, and they love to share this knowledge with somebody who's truly interested. And also, you know, whenever I can, I would shoot them like a gift card to a restaurant or something, you know, just as a small thank you. Um, so, that's how I, I did it. And I had one expert, a theologian from Texas, actually, um, a double PhD who knows all this, all this stuff. Um, and he, uh, he, he was with me for my next book the, about the, the Queen of Sheba. And then when I married my husband, Brian, um, he's also a, a pastor. He said, well, you can't do it without me. And he came out and he married us. So wow. that was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you if you send them a book later, but you just send them a wedding invitation mm -hmm. <laughs> too. He has all the books. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's great. And I, I'm assuming that uh, when when people receive those books, they're they're probably overjoyed that their research somehow somehow found its way into it. I I think so. Um, and and I don't know. I I I hope I hope that they're happy about that. Um, I hope that they're happy. And, you know, I'll tell you something funny too. It's amazing how many people, especially, um, you know, experts in history or different things like that secretly long to write fiction. And so they are also in turn often very curious about this fiction writing life as well and have questions. So 
Have you ever considered co-writing with any of these experts? Um, no, no, I haven't. Um, but I have definitely given advice and encouraged um, some of them. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because I, 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 the reason I ask is, I you have a very successful series with Ted Decker. I was wondering if you could kind of tell us how that came about, because I think for a lot of authors, co-writing is still a thing that they're they're really not sure about it, uh, and it yeah. seems kind of scary. I get asked about that a lot. Um, so, and I've also since then co-authored another book, which has not been sold yet. Um, but yeah, co-authoring is its own kind of animal. And my advice that I always give people. Um, is that if you're going to do that, make sure that you and your writing partner both know exactly what your strengths are as a writer, as a person, as you know, how you work, know what you're bringing to the table so that you know how those strengths complement one another. Um, beyond that, um, the way that Ted and I ended up writing together is I wrote to him for an endorsement. And uh, he wrote back and he said, uh, what are you working on right now? And I told him and, and he was like, is your contract exclusive? And I was like, look, dude, are you going to give me the endorsement or what? <laughs> so, and what I didn't know is my name had been brought up to him as a potential co-author. And then I happened to write to him. So um, that was a very short process actually, because he talked to his agent, he talked to mine and he had a meeting coming up with his publisher and boom, we had a contract. So um that, that happened like very quickly. But then, you know, the writing process with a co-author can be very drawn out. And I think that it takes a while to figure out the process how, for you as a partnership, how it's going to work. And I think it's different for every partnership. I know a lot of people who collaborate and I've never heard of anybody doing it the same. Yes. And I think that that process gets faster as you do each book. But, you know, it's a learning curve for sure. Yeah, without breaking any NDAs or giving away any any top secret information, can you uh, can you explain a little in more detail what the what the strengths that you and and Ted individually bring to your partnership? Yeah, so at the time that we started our trilogy, the Books of Mortals trilogy, he was best known for his fast pacing, his um, plotting, you know, his storytelling. I was known for my prose research, stuff like that. And so um, those things went really well together. The, the challenge for us is that our voices were vastly different. So he was coming out of writing serial killer stuff, thrillers. I was coming out of writing historical, lyrical, slightly literary fiction. So we had to write and rewrite one another over and over and over. You know, And I liken it to putting layers of veneer on something uh, to get that nice lacquer. And we had to do it over and over. But by the third book, we, we had that voice down um, pretty pat. So I would say that, you know, we found it. And the, the, the funny thing is after we finished, he went off and started writing uh, ancient biblical historical stuff. And I started writing thrillers. So. <laughs> so you went the, like the other direction. <laughs> we crossed. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you think that you've developed a, the two of you now have a unique readership where that you didn't have before. I mean, clearly you would have some crossover from uh, people who read, you know, your stuff before and will we'll continue to read it no matter who you write with. But do you, do you think there's a new readership that solely belongs to both of you now? There might be. I, I think if anything, though, um, what happened is that I grew my readership because a lot of his readers, because Ted has many more readers than I, than I do even now. Um, 
but definitely then he had many times more readers. And so um, I grew my readership. And so um, that is that can be a real advantage to writing with someone who has a far better established brand and who has many more books out than you do. So um, I think that's how I benefited. Um, I think um, how he benefited, I think uh, you might have to ask him, but I think that um, just having a fresh voice in the storytelling process and, um, you know, kind of a new, a new branded trilogy um, was what he was after. So. Right. Right. And now that you sort of have your own established platform and are doing well for yourself, what would you be looking for if, uh, if you were, if someone you knew came to you and said, I have this idea, what do you think? Like, what would you be looking for now that you're that person? I'd be looking at how would what we would be able to produce together, how would that add to um, the shelf of books that I've got already? And how would um, it add to that person's shelf? And how would our two brands together um, benefit, um, not just ourselves, but our readers? So could we do the story um, justice? So the, I mentioned that I had just done a, a collaboration and that was a um, World War II collaboration and um, a novel. And I have more novels under my belt than my collaborator, um, but he is uh, very well known for his World War II um, nonfiction books. So, you know. Peanut butter and chocolate like a, kind of thing. Yeah, right? <laughs> it kind of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and one of the advantages of having an agent and, and being in that traditional world is the opportunity for licensing. Uh, so I and I know you have a few of your books that are in different varying states of acquisition. Can you talk at all about any of those, whether it be the sure. line between or uh, the progeny and the firstborn, any of those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the progeny and its sequel, uh, firstborn, were the first ones that sold, and the producers are Radar Pictures and Ed Burns's group. Um, you know, Radar Pictures most recently worked on the Jumanji remake movies, and um, so that has, is going through some different hoops and, and stuff, you know, it's never a straight line with any of this, this stuff. So you can't sit around holding your breath, waiting for it to come out on TV. You have to write the next thing. Um, the line between and its sequel, A Single Light, um, have been produced also by the, um, are being produced by the same groups. Um, and they are now pitching to networks. Um, we have a great showrunner, his name is Glenn Whitman. And Glenn wrote for Fringe, if you remember that TV series, yes. and also The Strain. So smart writer, great writer, um, really brilliant guy. Um, and I think that they started, they just started pitching. So I'm excited to see what happens. So yeah. we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And what's what's your role in, in that? Are you sort of happy on the <laughs> sideline? Are you are your fingers in it? Like what level uh, of involvement do you have? Well, um, my role is basically to say, "Go team!" You know, <laughs> go get them, and um, to answer questions, um, to send any you know books, promotional material, whatever. My publisher has been very good about sending books to the team too, because when they go to pitch, they like to take books in with them. Um, I supply information about awards, the books have won or anything that might help, you know, make it more shiny and, you know, appealing to, to networks. Um, and then to just, uh, answer questions and, um, give some creative feedback as, 
as it's asked for. So nice. Yeah. I'll bet that's fun though. <laughs> you know what? It's so fun. And, and people ask me all the time, like, Oh, is that terrible? Because it's, you're, it's not in your control and they're going to change it. Well, of course they're going to change it. You know, yeah, and it's a totally there's a different big difference. Medium. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a different medium. You know, you can't do a simple three act structure like you would for a movie, like, you know, for TV shows or, you know, so, um, of course it's going to be different, but you know, I liken it to creating a, a playground and I've played on it already. And now I'm going to see how somebody else plays on it and what they do. And I think it's, I think it's fun. That's a great approach. I've never heard it put that way before. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. let other people on the playground. That sounds yeah. so genuine. <laughs> you go play on it now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Well, um, you know, as we wrap up the conversation, one of the things I, uh, I like to ask our, our guests consistently, just because I think it's fun, not because anyone's going to know, but I, I'm curious from where you sit uh, as we're in, heading into a new de- decade, where is the publishing industry headed? Oh, now, if I could answer that, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's that's something a lot of people would like to know. But I think in general, you can look at the music industry and where it has gone and publishing has always kind of followed suit. So, you know, as music industry went to Napster and then, you know, other things like iTunes and Spotify and all this stuff, I think that the publishing industry is also following, following suit. Um, you know, you've got all, all these digital books, you've got people wanting free content. And, um, you know, with the cost of a hardcover being sometimes up to $26 or more even, um, you know, I think it's hard for people to want to pay, you know, for some of those when you've got so many ebooks that are 99 cents or free or whatever. Um, so that's kind of where we've come as far as where we're going. I think storytellers are going to have to find new and innovative innovative ways to do a couple things, to tell stories um, and to, to tell them in new ways with maybe new media, um, with new collaborations, um, you know, maybe not just words, maybe something else, um, new mediums. Um, and I think they're going to have to find new and innovative ways to reach readers. It sounds like that that old myth of the the writer in the cabin with a typewriter is is definitely done. If that was ever a thing, yeah, and I, I'm sad for that in a way. Though I do like being able to communicate on a daily basis if I wanted to, you know, with my readers, you know, via social media and stuff. So, you know, I have to say that social media has been really great in that it gives writers a way to have some kind of instant gratification in this process that you know, is all about delayed gratification, basically, because it can take years sometimes to get a book out. And so to have that interaction and remember who your readers readers are and to have that encouragement um, from your fan base is just really awesome. Yeah. Just build more playgrounds and invite more people to come and play. Yep. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tosca Lee, another writer doing home renovations. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all are at this point. I mean, especially with the virus, I think a lot of people are just sitting home and just deciding that this wall needs to be a different color. You know, yeah. I, I don't like this furniture. Like it's it's hard to just sit in those in those walls and 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 not make adjustments to it. Yeah. Um. I I, I love how she blames her OCD. <laughs> for, I mean, because she, she does she loves to research. I mean, that's that's her her thing, and she's really good at it. Um. You know. A lot of her books, uh, you know, they're historical based and, and that's one of those things where 
if, if you get it wrong, you know, something that, you know, is historical fact or at least considered to be fact, um, you, you will get so many emails. You will hear about of it. People, yeah, they will point out that, you know, you got this wrong, you did that wrong, or you, you know, glossed over this or, or whatever. Um, and, and she's just so strong when it comes to research, like those types of problems just don't exist in, in her books. Yeah, it's also worth noting that this was uh, interview was recorded prior to the pandemic. Uh, and so, uh, you know, talking about some of the traveling that she was doing and the author events, obviously that uh, that changed. But just a, a note on that in case people were wondering why it wasn't mentioned. Yeah, well, I'm sure she's still doing it. It's probably all just on Zoom now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the, something she t- talked about uh, that I wanted to ask you about was uh, she seemed to be really actively engaged in some of the places where readers gather, and specifically I'm talking like social media and Goodreads. Um, how often or, or how do you, if you do engage readers in that way? Well, it's funny because, you know, I first approached her for a blurb, um, just like she first approached Ted Decker. You know, that's how, how a lot of these relationships start. Um, and, you know, once we got that out of the way, she started picking my brain, you know, on the indie side, like, you know, how do you do this? How do you do that? Because she's been with, as far as I know, a traditional publisher her entire career. I don't think she's actually self-published anything. Um, she's with Simon and Schuster um, and a division of, of Simon and Schuster uh, called Howard, um, which primarily focuses on Christian writing, um, which is another whole thing. I mean, that's a, it's a very you know large community. And, and if you can get in there, it's, it's a, a great place to be as an author. Um, but she, she's, you know, as soon as we got the blurb out of the way, she started picking my brain, you know, from as an indie author. Um, so we talked quite a bit about Goodreads. Um, yeah, I, I was doing a lot of Goodreads advertising at the time. And unfortunately, they, they pulled the plug on that over the last year or so. Uh, we're ver- both very active in the book clubs um, on Goodreads, the communities on Goodreads, just getting in there. I mean, it, whenever I put a book out, you know, whether it's traditional or indie at this point, I tend to put it up on NetGalley. Um, and that, you know, that's usually a couple months in advance. And that starts the feedback, um, which the only place you can really post your feedback that early on is in Goodreads. Um, so the, the general thinking is to try and, you know, by the time you hit your launch date, you know, have a couple hundred reviews out on the Goodreads side. Uh, and it gives you a, a couple things that, that I personally like. I mean, you get feedback before the book is actually out. Um, so if you see a lot of readers, you know, that are, are nitpicky or, or finding a particular problem or something with a story that's not working, you still have a little time to change it. Um, and on the traditional side, that's, you know, that's huge to be able to get out there, you know, in, in advance. Because obviously on Amazon, you don't see any reviews until the book is actually out. Um, so we both do quite a bit of that. Um, she's very heavy into Facebook. I'm not. Um, I, I advertise on Facebook a lot, but I, you know, it's very rare that I'll actually go on there and actually look at, you know, even my own comments or, or messages. Um, I, I don't participate in any groups at all. Um, and I know she does. Um, she's also on a farm in the middle of nowhere, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, th- this might be, you know, one of her, you know, ways to, to actually stay in touch with everybody. Um, you know, a lot of people use, you know, fa- uh, Facebook just for that. And she's just obviously expanding it as an author. Um, but she's, she's a very social person. She always, always has been. And I, I think she's just, you know, expanding on that. Um, I, I find it fascinating that she's able to do that at Simon and Schuster because you mm. know, most of the things that she talks about, these are things that you hear from indie authors. Um, right. Know, her publisher, you know, they've, they've come around a little bit, you know, like she had mentioned they're, they're willing to drop the price to do a promotion. Um, 
you know, they're, they're, they're willing to do things like that. You know, like HMH put, you know, my three uh, forum K books are, they're in Kindle unlimited. That was something they would have never touched before. Um, so, you, you know, we're starting to see certain publishers that are willing to, to try some of these things um, with the, the virus being out there. I think we're going to see a lot more of them. I think they're, they're a lot more open to, to trying some of these things that they wouldn't have before because, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out how to sell more eBooks. Um, whereas before their focus was on print. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, what about the, uh, she talked a little bit about licensing and, uh, I, I know that's something that you're pretty familiar with. Um, what'd you think of, of, of her approach to that? As far as the, the movies and TV? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well she, you know, she started off writing primarily historical Christian related fiction and now she's, you know, full on into the thriller world. Um, so I think it's become a lot more marketable her, her material, um, I, I think the experience that she's she's having right now is it's very similar to the what the rest of us have you know like the it's it's a lot of hurry up and wait you know the the book gets published or it gets op, you know it immediately gets optioned and everybody's excited about it and then it gets kind of quiet um and you know then the you know they, sometimes they switch out a writer you know you don't hear anything for a couple of months and there's maybe this new person on board and it gets sparked back up again um you know it, it's one of those things where you just you, know, you have to be available when they need you um but for the most part you have to be able to put it out of your head because if you focus on it too much you'll get caught up in it you're not going to have time to write the next book um she, she's got a couple of series i think that are in the works um you know and hopefully it works out she's got some great people behind her um but you know everything is just always so in flux and right now hollywood has literally just hit the pause button on on pretty much everything that's going on out there um that's you know obviously complicating things as well yeah 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 it was uh really fun talking to her. She's a really interesting person and, uh, and, and very knowledgeable. Uh, anything else from the interview that you, you was outstanding for you? No, I mean, I just, I love the fact that she's, you know, willing to, to talk to people about this kind of thing. And if you see her at Thriller Fest or if you see her, you know, presenting somewhere at a library talk, whatever it might be, definitely approach her. Um, she's very open. Um, you know, again, she was one of the first people to give me a blurb. Um, you know, a lot of New York Times authors, they, they, you know, it's very difficult to get a hold of them. And she was wide open to, to doing something like that. Um, you know, her comments as far as co-authoring too, I think that's huge, you know, like, uh, peanut butter and chocolate, I think is, I, I don't know if you brought that up or she did, but that's a good way to look at it. You know, if, if the two co-authors are bringing two different things to the table and you can combine them into something that's better, it's worthwhile. But if, you know, if you're both coming to the table with peanut butter, you know, it's, it's, it's not, um, you know, and, and they obviously both got something out of it. I mean, Ted Decker changed his, you know, what he's writing, you know, based on his experience with her and, and vice versa. She changed what she was writing based on her experience with him. Um, and that series in general, it really did grab the best, the best of both of them and, and put it into those three books. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Very excellent conversation and uh, happy she could come on and, and talk to us about it. Yes, uh, so I'm afraid that uh, they finally caught up to us, JD. The FBI <laughs> is on us. <laughs> yeah, it was bound to happen sooner or later. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people don't realize this, but, you know, it, when you're writing thrillers in particular, you know, you're obviously, there's a lot of police involved, there's FBI involved, there might be CIA involved, there might be NSA involved, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. A lot of authors early on, they don't realize that all these different organizations have liaisons out there uh, to help you get your facts straight. So if you've got a character that's an FBI agent or you've got a character that's a spy or whatever it might be, you can actually reach out to the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, and they will put you in touch with somebody who will answer 
answer whatever questions you have, providing it's a question they're allowed to answer. <laughs> um, so next week, we've got a woman named Betsy Glick on, who is the, the FBI liaison. Um, and again, somebody, I've, you know, I met it the first time at Thriller Fest, and she's on my speed dial. You know, if I've got a question related to FBI procedural, you know, systems, um, current technology, uh, any anything along those lines, she's she's my go-to person. And she and is an agent. Like, she's a legit yeah, she, agent. She's an act- yeah, she's a legit agent. Um, it's it's like having uh, you know a research assistant that knows everything about the FBI right right there at your fingertips. Um, with a you know, and again, just like what we were just mentioning with Tosca, this is huge because you don't want to put in something about an FBI agent and be inaccurate because you're going to hear about it. Um, the only inaccuracies I think you can actually get away with is combining people. Um, you know, and, and CSI is probably a great example of that. You know, a typical CSI you know episode, they've got what four or five main characters that that kind of do everything, and those four or five people in real life represent probably four or five hundred different people. Um, and, 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 and that's fairly normal. Um, and she'll tell you that she'll say, you know, you could combine these, you know, these particular jobs, it's okay to combine them. This one, you know, you may want to put out there. Um, but, but little things, you know, if you've got issues on jurisdiction, you know, like who's going to handle this, who's going to handle what, like, why would something go to the FBI lab? Um, how long would it actually take to run DNA? Like anything like that, she can get the answer for you. Um, to a great person to, to know. Yeah. So that's going to be a fun conversation. Uh, make sure you guys tune in. That'll be coming up next week. Yes, sir. So to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.